I want to wish you a happy Sabbath. It's a, it's a happy day today, amen? amen? Every day is a happy day in Jesus, but especially the Sabbath, where we're reminded that He is our wonderful, kind Creator, our loving Lord, and uh, we are made in His image, and by His grace, we're being remade in His wonderful image. I count it a high honor to stand before you here this morning, and uh, we have a message I'd like to share that something that I've been thinking about and cogitating upon for some time now. I think it's very relevant for what we're seeing, not just in our world in general, but also in our church in specific. And so we're just going to pray and jump right on into the presentation. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love that has drawn us to this place at this time that we might have this encounter with the living Christ. Lord, we are in desperate need of a fresh revelation of Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd please reveal your face to us. Show us your glory. And as we behold you today by the study of your word, allow us to become changed into that same image. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us and that you would instruct us and that you would inspire us to be the people you want us to be. Lord, we know that you're coming soon and that all the prophecies are pointing to the reality that time is almost finished. Convict us afresh with that reality today. And I pray, Lord, that as a result of our time together, we would be better prepared for your return. Be with us now. Lead and guide us by your Spirit. And Lord, not only lead us, but fill us with that same Holy Spirit is our prayer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our message this morning is entitled, The Highway to the Upper Room. I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Revelation. And we're going to go to the 12th chapter. As we study the highway to the upper room, Revelation chapter 12 is a very familiar chapter to us. For in this chapter, we read in prophetic language the awesome description of the climax of the final conflict of the ages, the final showdown between a demonic dragon and a beautiful, beloved bride. In verse 17, it describes it. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. If you're there and if you're ready to study the Bible, would you please say amen? amen. The Bible says, Revelation 12, 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. According to these serious and solemn words of prophecy, we find that the dragon, who is none other than Satan himself, is not angry at every church. For many churches are spreading his deceptions and lies in the world today, just as we studied last night. Satan, according to this passage, is only afraid to those who are a threat to his kingdom. And it describes this woman, this church, this movement that excites the wrath 
of the dragon because it is this movement that will usher in the demise of Satan and thus the enemy of God and man is focusing all of his weapons of mass distraction against these individuals, these Bible-believing, Christ-following, faith-walking, commandment-keeping, Sabbath-resting, Advent-waiting, Spirit-filled, gospel-preaching people of God. Amen. That's who we are, friends. Amen. Amen. And according to the text... Satan is angry at this woman and her remnant for at least three reasons. Number one, because she is the beloved bride of his chief enemy, Jesus Christ. This is the bride of Christ. Number two, this woman keeps the commandments of his enemy, thus proving his accusations of the great controversy false. And number three, this woman has the testimony of his enemy. The testimony of Jesus Christ. She's always talking about her heavenly husband, Jesus Christ. And in this great controversy, Jesus, through his bride, is going to testify against the false accusations of Satan. And this excites his wrath. Thus, the dragon Satan wants to silence the testimony of Jesus. And in order to do so, he has to silence this woman. He hates this woman. But what exactly does he hate about her? Why is he so adamant in trying to silence the testimony of Jesus? What exactly is the testimony of Jesus and how is it revealed? Well, we are very familiar that according to Revelation 19 and verse 10, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the what? The spirit of prophecy. So this woman excites the wrath of Satan. One of the reasons is because she has the testimony of her husband, Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. It is the spirit of prophecy that gives to this woman her mission and her message as well as her methods in fulfilling her mission and giving the message. And friends, let me just say this. The spirit of prophecy is not one prophet in the last days, but the spirit of prophecy is the Holy Spirit speaking through all the prophets of God from the beginning to the very end of time. And so this woman is moved by all the things that God has revealed through his servants, his prophets. She has the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. It's the prophetic testimony given by Jesus through his spirit to his people. And I want to make this point plain. I encourage you to write down these scriptures for the sake of time. It's on the screen. Jesus said in John 14, 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you how many things? All things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So once again, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy, is simply the testimony of Jesus. The Spirit of God brings back to our remembrance that which Jesus has testified, the words of Jesus, and there's an emphasis with this word all, all things that God has revealed from the beginning to the very end of time. Notice another one. Jesus, speaking about the Holy Spirit, says in John 16, 12, and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I'm thankful that God does not overwhelm us by giving us too much information, but he only gives us that which our finite, puny minds can handle at that present time. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will, what is that word right there? Guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority 
but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So once again, friends, the spirit of prophecy, that which the spirit reveals to us, is simply the testimony of Jesus. It takes the things that are of Christ and it reveals it to us gradually and sequentially. And progressively, as our minds open up and as the path of the just that is like a shining light shines more and more and more until that perfect day. But notice, friends, there's an emphasis with the word all. The spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus. God is wanting to lead us into all truth. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to fill us in on everything Jesus wants us to know and everywhere Jesus wants us to go. And friends, this word guide denotes that there's a journey. The word guide denotes that there's a pathway and there's a specific destination to arrive at. A guide denotes that we are being led in a way that we naturally do not know how to walk upon. That's why we need a guide. The guide shows us the way. And so this implies that God's people are not just going to be a church and an organization, but they're going to be a movement because to be guided along a pathway implies that there's movement taking place. And that's what we are, friends. We are a prophetic movement of destiny. And tell me, what is one of the chief characteristics of a movement? It's on the move, amen? That's right. We're moving. In other words, friends, listen, we're not just a conversation. We are a movement. God is not just calling us to sit around and conversate about spiritual things. There's something that needs to take place after that. In order for us to be a movement, we have to be on the move. And how do we move? We move by the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy that guides us to a deeper understanding and experience of all that God wants us to know and experience in our lives. But the question is, where from where and where does the remnant move? Which way do they go? What is that path from point A to point B that the Spirit is seeking to move us? Oh, friends, in order for us to know this way, this path, we must study those in the Bible who are actually called the people of the way. And that's what they call the early apostolic church. You see, friends, this woman in Revelation 12 represents the church of the first century, the early apostolic church, the one that stands upon the solid moon, the rock of, of God's word, that, that, that is clothed with the sun of the righteousness of Christ, and that has the crown of 12 stars representing angels, representing the messengers, the 12 apostles, the church of the first century. That's who the woman is. And in verse 17, it says that Satan is angry. He's filled with rage against that woman. He's angry at her but he takes it out on her seed. Did you catch that? He's angry at the woman, but he doesn't attack the woman. He attacks the remnant of her seed. Why? Because by the time we get into verse 17, that woman, that early apostolic church and the church in the wilderness is passed off the scene. But thank God she has some offspring. She has some children. She has a remnant in the last days. And for that word remnant simply means that which remains and is just like the Original. In other words, the remnant people are those who remain original. 
In other words, they're not changing as the world changes. They're not copying the fashions and customs and culture of the world. No, friends. God's people in the last days, the remnant movement, are just like the original. They have a pure faith. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they have a mission that's going to turn the whole world upside down. The remnant are those who remain original. There are some individuals who call themselves, I'm a progressive Christian. And they think that progressing means that we have to change and adapt to the customs of our culture and our society. But friends, that type of progressive thinking is actually digressive because it leads us all the way back to the Garden of Eden where the serpent said, you shall not surely die. Your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God. Friends, what many people think as progressive is actually taking us back to Eden. You see, true progressive Christianity are those who remain original. Why? Because it's that pure faith that's going to move the movement forward and usher in the second coming of Christ. It will progress to the return of King Jesus. Can you say amen? amen. More I can say on that, but let me move on. God has promised us that as we look back to the past, to study the experience of that original church, the early apostolic church, the church that is founded upon that solid rock. As we look at the movement of the past, it gives us a precedent and it teaches us how we as a movement are to move in the present. And so what I want to do right now is I want to go back to see how God moved his movement yesterday that we might learn how we are to move today. And as we do so, here's the promise the Lord gives to us in the book Last Day Events on page 72, amongst other places. It says, we have nothing to fear for the future. Let's read it together. Except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and is teaching in our past history. So we don't have to be afraid of the wrath of the dragon. Nothing to fear for the future. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But what that which removes the fear from our hearts is as we look back into the past and remember the way, the what? The way the Lord led us in the past gives us confidence that he will lead us on into the future. Why? Because when you look back at the past, we see the precedent being set that gives us instructions for now. You see? As we look back at the mighty outpouring in the days of the early apostolic church, God is seeking not only to inspire us, but also instruct us as to what to do in the present. For what happened in the past in the experience of the early apostolic church is but a glimpse, friends, of what God desires to do in the experience of the remnant of that early apostolic church. And in order to have their results, we first must have their experience. We must see the things that their eyes have seen and hear the things their ears have heard. We need to know what they knew in order to have the, the results and the experience that they had. And so my question this morning is, what exactly was their experience? And what was the prerequisite for the power of Pentecost? What exactly was it that that early church experience that many times we lack in the last days? Two things. How many? I summarized it in two things. Maybe more, but surely not less than these two things. Summarized with two words, and here they are. 
a road and a room. A road and a room. A path and a place. And we're going to see this morning that these two things, this was the prerequisite that caused Pentecost to become a reality. And so I want to trace it back from Pentecost. We're going to work backwards from effect to its cause. And then we'll review at the end from cause to effect. Before Pentecost took place, there was a room. It was called the upper room experience. And and in this upper room experience, the apostles were of one accord. They were unified in spirit. They made a wrongs right between themselves and God. They humbled themselves before one another and before their God. And as they prayed and pled for the power of the Holy Spirit, God fulfilled the promise he made to their ancestors in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, where the Bible and God promises to us, if my people who are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. And that powerful promise was profoundly fulfilled in in the experience of that early church in the upper room. The healing reign of God's power and love fell upon and flowed through the apostles and its ripple effect grew into a tsunami of revival that brought spiritual revolution to the whole world. It was so dramatic that even the enemy said that their doctrine has turned this world upside down by these humble and unlearned men. They were the movers and shakers. They proclaimed the messages that shook the world, Spirit of Prophecy says. It was so dramatic. But according to prophecy, history is going to be repeated in a far more profound and dramatic way with the remnant of that woman's seed. We've been told in the book, Great Controversy, on page 464, please write it down. It says, before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since when? Apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. Then notice what's going to happen. What is the evidence of the Holy Spirit? It's not a conversation, friends. Notice what it is. At that time, many will separate themselves from the churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept those great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare people for the Lord's second coming. So it says here that the results of this final last day upper room experience, the spirit of God is going to be poured out. And as a result, many people who are part of the churches of Babylon that love the world more than loving the word are going to come out of Babylon. They're going to join with the final movement of the last days and accept this present truth message. And and friends, what happened in the early days is but a glimpse of this final outpouring. And I want to experience it in my life. How about you? I'm thankful that in our ministry, God has allowed me, given me the privilege of seeing this prophecy partially fulfilled, at least with mine own eyes. Just a few months ago, we held meetings in the wicked city of San Francisco And it was a beautiful meeting. We were there just a few months ago. We held an evangelistic series, the Revelation of Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar. And it was wonderful. We invited the community. And I'll never forget Brother Bill, who came to the meetings from the community. Brother Bill came night after night after night. He was enjoying the message. He was coming alive because of the wonderful truths of prophecy in the context of Christ. 
And I'll never forget that night when we talked about the God of new beginnings. The God that makes all things new. The God that has a special movement of the last day. And we, we gave the, the appeal for people to come forward in baptism and joining the final movement. And I'll never forget Bill coming down to the front. And with tears in his eyes, he looked at me and he said to me, Do you folks have room for an ordained minister? You see, Bill was a pastor or minister in the non-denominational church. And before he was baptized, here he is getting baptized. Before he was baptized, he testified and he said these words, and I quote from Bill. He says, I'm getting rebaptized because the Lord has led me to the Seventh-day Adventist church to unite with the remnant church of Bible prophecy. I have been in the ministry for four and a half years in a non-denominational church, and I have now been led to greater truth and so I'm recommitting myself to God for even greater service. Amen. I can go on for the next three hours telling you story after story after story of what the Lord has allowed me to personally see with my own eyes in the last seven, eight years as we've done over 55 evangelistic series throughout California and Hawaii and all the other parts of the, of the world. We find glimpses of Pentecost being repeated right now today. Mercy drops round us are falling. But I want the showers. How about you? Amen? Amen. And for those showers, we must plead, friends. And so my question, what is it going to take for Pentecost to be repeated? What is the prerequisite for Pentecost? It's going to take an upper room experience. How many of you see your need for an upper room experience? Well, friends, I want to submit to you this morning that many of God's people are not even ready for the upper room. You see... Before the upper room, there is a previous preparatory experience that we first must have in order for the upper room to even make a difference. And not only are we not ready for Pentecost, we're not even ready for the upper room, many of us. There is an experience that we must have beforehand. Listen carefully, friends. The reason why the prayers of the apostles worked in the upper room is because they had this experience that we're going to talk about right now. In other words, this experience is what laid the foundation for that upper room experience. The point is this, before the disciples could be filled with the Spirit in the upper room, they first had to be led by the Spirit to the upper room. Before the disciples could be filled with the Spirit in the upper room, they first had to be led by the Spirit to the upper room. In other words, listen carefully. The Spirit would lead them, would guide them up a road that would lead to the upper room. And the lessons that these disciples learned on this road is what prepared them for the outpouring of power in the upper room. In other words, it is an upper road that leads to the upper room. And that is the previous preparatory experience that we need to have. I like to call it the upper road experience. And so this morning, I want to invite you, let's walk up that road together, shall we? Because on this road, we will hear the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. This upper road I'm referring to is found in the book of Luke, chapter 24. And so I invite you to take your Bible and open there with me to Luke 24. Without walking this road, the upper room would not have made a difference. This was a previous experience that they needed. Luke 24, 
we find the disciples walking away from Jerusalem. By the way, where was the upper room? It was in Jerusalem. They were walking away from the upper room. They were walking away from Jerusalem, which means the city of peace. They left peace behind. Because as they're walking away from Jerusalem, heading to the village called Emmaus, they had no peace at all. And I want us to notice the cogitations of their mind and the meditations of their heart. Luke 24, beginning of verse 13. If you're there, would you let me know by saying amen? It says, and behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. And they talked together of all the things which had happened. You see, we have to understand the mindset of these two disciples. They're walking away from peace, the city of peace. They're walking away from that upper room. They're heading to the village called Emmaus. The son of hope had gone down and the night of woe had settled upon their hearts. These two disciples with the rest were absorbed in gloom and grief. They were utterly hopeless and bitterly disappointed. They were crushed by confusion and they were drowning in, in despondency and despair because they had just witnessed he who they thought was the Messiah be nailed to a cruel cross. And as believers in him, they felt that perhaps they would meet the same fate. And so the future seemed dark and uncertain for them. There was no light in sight. They were standing in the dark shadow of the cross, and it was unbearable. They felt crushed by the weight. And friends, I want you to notice that they had seen the cross with their own eyes, but they failed to understand its significance. Could it be possible that we have seen the cross, but we don't really understand what it means? These two disciples represent all those who have suffered a disappointment in life, all those whose faith is faltering and whose commitments to Christ are cooling down because of the cares of life. They're confused and they're bewildered and they, and they feel like perhaps God has forsaken them. Have you ever been there? Walking away from peace, heading to Emmaus. But I want you to notice what Jesus does for those who are plagued with pain and those who feel so far away from his presence. Oh, it's very simple, but it's so beautiful. Bible says in the next verse, verse 15, and it came to pass while they communed together in reason, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. I'm so thankful, friends, that Christ came close to the ones who felt so far. I'm not sure how you came to church this morning. Maybe you came in a similar condition. Maybe the failures of this past week are causing you to feel so guilt-ridden. You feel unworthy of being in this place. Maybe you're going through a dark experience in your life. Maybe, maybe your marriage is being attacked or your children are acting crazy. Maybe your, your health or your finances is waning. And you're tempted to feel, Lord, where are you? Why are not these prayers being answered? Maybe you're tempted to feel like God is far. But don't ever forget, my friends. It's when you feel the farthest away from him that he is the closest to you. The Bible says that Jesus himself drew near, began to walk with these disciples who were absorbed in gloom and grief. The Bible tells us that God is close. He draws near to the brokenhearted. 
He revives the spirit of, of the humble and, and revives the heart of the contrite ones. When you look back at your life and you see that one set of footprint, it wasn't yours. You couldn't walk through that experience. It was then that the Lord was carrying you. And he carried you to church this morning. I want to give you hope today, friends, no matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been. It does not matter how you came. What matters is that you did come. And Jesus has promised, he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen. Amen. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He comes close to these disciples. Why? Because he's wanting to turn them away from Emmaus and turn them to the upper room in Jerusalem. You see, friends, the destination of their journey was the village called Emmaus. And it's interesting that that word Emmaus in the original language literally means warm baths. What does it mean? The village called Emmaus, meaning warm baths. In other words, their destination was a reflection of their experience. Their commitments were cooling down. And, and now these two are settling into Laodicean lukewarmness. They're leaving their problems behind. They were going to the comfort zone, maybe just going home to take a nice warm bath and forget about their disappointment. But by the time Jesus is finished with them, they're not warm. They're hot. As they testify, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way? Their hearts began to burn within them. You see, friends, it was on this road that Jesus was walking with them, this upper road experience, that they began to burn with the fire of Pentecost because here is where they heard the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. Here is where the baptism of fire actually began. And so what Jesus does here, I'm not going to take the time to read it. You can study when you get home. Just to summarize, Jesus draws near to these disciples to help them understand the prophetic significance of the cross. The what? The prophetic significance of the cross. But how he does it is absolutely unremarkable to human eyes and from a human perspective. Notice how he does it. Luke 24, jumping down to verse 25. How did Jesus help these two disciples turn from Laodicean warm bath Emmaus to Jerusalem where, they, where the fire fell? He helped them understand the prophetic significance of the cross. How did he do it? Verse 25. He said to them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe, what's that next word? All that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27. And beginning at Moses, and what's the next word? All the prophets he expounded unto them. That means he gave a systematic, sequential, detailed explanation. He expounded unto them, what's the next word? In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So notice the emphasis of the word all. Here's the testimony of Jesus. And the way in which he helps them understand the, the significance of what they just saw at Jerusalem is that he takes the time to show them from all the scriptures, all the prophets, the things concerning himself. You see, friends, this approach of Christ is very peculiar and unique. It would have been much easier and a lot faster for Christ to simply satisfy the sight of their eyes by performing a miracle, by revealing himself, by demonstrating his power. But instead of doing that, Jesus took the time to approach them as a common traveler and he took the time to break down the prophecies of the scripture and show how these prophecies, how all of them 
was referring to himself. Instead of appealing to their feelings and their senses, Christ broke down Bible prophecy. The reason why is because he wanted their faith not to rest upon an outward demonstration, a subjective experience. He wanted their faith not to rest upon the things that they saw with their eyes, but he wanted the, their faith to rest upon the sure word of prophecy as it's found in the context of Christ. The book Desire of Ages, page 796 says, Christ performed no miracle to convince them, but it was his first work to do what? Explain the scriptures. They had looked upon his death as the destruction of all their hopes. Now he showed from the prophets that this was the very what? Strongest evidence for their faith. The very strongest evidence for their faith was the testimony of Jesus pointing to the spirit of prophecy. You see, that which enabled the disciples to finally understand the significance of the cross. Listen, listen. It's when Jesus put the cross in the context of prophecy. In fact, it was Christ-centered prophecy that made a difference. This is what caused their hearts to become hot. It's what caused them to not be lukewarm in Emmaus, but it caused them to be on fire. It's when they understood and entered into the experience of Christ-centered prophecy. This, my friends, is the lesson that was learned on the upper road that prepared them for the outpouring of power in the upper room. Then he appeared to the rest of them shortly. And by the way, this is what caused them to turn from Emmaus and turn to the road that would lead to the upper room. It was when they understood this. And after that, he appeared to the rest of them shortly thereafter and did the exact same thing. Notice in verse 44, Luke 24, verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. That how many things? All things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning who? Concerning me. Verse 45. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Jumping down to 49. Then notice. And behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So notice, friends, the sequence. Before they could be endued with power on high in Jerusalem in that upper room, they first they had to have their minds open that they might understand the scriptures, specifically Christ-centered prophecy. And because they understood Christ-centered prophecy, they then knew how to pray in the upper room and their prayers worked. Why? Because their prayers were based upon sound theology, founded upon the word, centered in Christ and blessed by the Holy Spirit. Because they were led by the Spirit on the upper road, they were now prepared to be filled with the Spirit in the upper room. And friends, listen, the remnant will have the same sequential experience. Because what is the definition of the word remnant once again? That which remains and is just like the, in other words, those who remain original. That was the sequence, friends. The upper road where they learn Christ-centered prophecy that led to the upper room, that empowered them to proclaim that message to the world. The remnant of the last days will have the same sequential experience. Oh, but let me share with you this morning. For every truth, 
there's a counterfeit. For every genuine revival, there is a counterfeit revival brewing at the same time. And friends, do you realize that there is a counterfeit upper room experience that is sweeping across the churches of the world today? And basically it's this. It is an upper room experience that does not have an upper road. It's an upper room without the upper road. It's a destination without a clear way of arriving there because they say there are many ways to get there. But friends, listen, if you do not have a plain path, you just might end up in a wrong room. If you don't have a plain path, you might end up in a wrong destination. And that is exactly what's happening in the Christian world today where churches are saying let's put aside all our doctrinal differences and let's just come together and pray let's be unified in the spirit it doesn't matter what we believe as to be the truth let's put aside all of those things in other words they're saying let's put aside the truth for the sake of unity and harmony in the spirit and it sounds nice but it's a room without the road it's it has no foundation it's sinking sand why? Because, friends, listen, God cannot bless a union and a unity that is not in harmony with his word of truth. A union without truth is an unholy union. The Bible identifies that as spiritual harlotry. And, friends, what we're seeing here is so sad. There's a watering down of the gospel message of Christ. And the true gospel is being replaced by a false counterfeit gospel a greasy grace and a sloppy agape theology that calls people to a room, but no clear path, no clear road to get to that room. An ecumenical apostasy that prophecy predicted is emerging all around us. We talked about that last night. And friends, I want to share with you that even in Adventism, we're hearing messages and people saying that we need to downplay our distinctives. As I mentioned the other night, there's a lot of one-sided projects and one-sided preaching that is throwing God's people off balance. Let us never forget, friends, that the road to heaven and the road to the upper room is straight and narrow. And the only way we can walk securely on this upper road that leads to the upper room and the final upper room in heaven is if we are balanced as we walk in that way. Let's never forget that there are two ditches on either side of the narrow road of God's will. Two ditches that Satan has placed there and he does not care which ditch we fall into as long as we're not walking that straight and narrow road that leads to the upper room. Two ditches on either side of the narrow road. The first ditch that I want to talk about this morning is the ditch of legalism. Cold, dry, hard formality. An emphasis in, in truth, but there's no kind, sweet spirit behind it. The ditch of legalism. We've been told in the book, Gospel Workers in Page, notice, 156. Many remarks have been made to the effect that in their discourses. Our speakers have dwelt upon the law and not upon Jesus. Many of our ministers have merely sermonized, presenting subjects in an argumentative way and scarcely mentioning the saving power of the Redeemer. Their testimony was destitute of the saving blood of Christ. It wasn't the testimony of Jesus they were bearing. It was destitute of the blood. Their offering resembled the offering of Cain. So it is, the application comes, with Christ-less sermons. 
it's like an offering of Cain. And friends, what can you tell me about the offering of Cain? It was rejected. There was no fire in that worship. No fire from heaven fell. It was cold. It was dry. It was not blessed by the fire of God. And friends, the reason why is because, as you know, Cain offered to God the works of his own hands, the fruit of his labor. His offering represents salvation by works. He was giving to God what he thought was best. He was giving to God the good things he did, the hard work as he tilled the ground and, and the fruit came forward. He gave to God the fruits, but the essential ingredient was missing. The fruit could not bleed. It did not have the blood. And therefore, there was no fire in that offering. Many sermons have no fire because it's missing the blood of Christ. You see, friends, Christianity is not about what we give to God, but it's about what God gives to us. Can you say amen? In contrast to that Christless offering of Cain, Abel's offering had the fire of heaven. It was warm and it was bright. Why? Because his service, his worship, his offering was not centered in what he was giving to God, but rather in what God was giving to him. Because that lamb that represents Christ gave its life. So here's a worship. That's centered in not what man is giving to God, but what in God is giving to man himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Amen. Amen. That's where the fire comes, friends. The fire that fell on Pentecost, it was because they understood what God was seeking to give to them through the death of his son, Jesus. And so it continues. Same quotation. By them, talking about Christless Sermons, offerings of Cain. It says, by them men are not pricked to the heart. They are not led to inquire, what must I do to be saved? Of all professing Christians, Seventh-day Adventists should be, what is this word right here? Foremost in uplifting Christ before the world. The proclamation of the third angel's message calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth. This truth with others included in the message is to be proclaimed. But the great center of attraction Christ Jesus must not be left out. It is at the cross of Christ that mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace kiss each other. The sinner must be led to look to Calvary with the simple faith of a little child. He must trust in the merits of the Savior, accepting his righteousness, believing in his mercy. Can you say amen? Friends, let's never forget, never forget, never forget that Jesus is the content and the context of our communication. He is the focus and foundation of our faith. He is the premise and the purpose of prophecy. Because, friends, it's not about so much what we know, but who we know. Amen. And we all know about him. But do you know him? We all know about Jesus today. But do you know him? Do you have that one-on-one -on -one experience with him? Many of our people know the what, but are grossly ignorant of the who. They've read the Bible, but they've missed Christ. And as a result, too many times we have preached prophecy without Christ. And you know what happens? As a result of preaching prophecy without Christ, we have a people serving God out of fear instead of love. People focusing so much on the beast that they lose sight of the lamb. Yes, as faithful watchmen, we must see the signs so that we might give the warning. But not only are we to point out the danger but we also must quickly point out the refuge that we have in Christ. Can you say amen? amen. 
We have preached standards without Christ. And as a result, we have placed a Christless cross upon the shoulders of people. And many have been crushed by this legalistic and loveless religion. And as a result, many people have given up their walk because, listen, it's impossible to live the standard without first loving the Savior. Christless preaching has created a bunch of legalists and fanatics that are constantly judging and criticizing and condemning other people while they, they themselves are filled with spiritual pride and hypocrisy. Oh, don't ever forget that dress reform, health reform, and education reform without Christ are nothing but dry and empty forms. And these things only have value as it leads us closer to the man, Jesus Christ. When I first came into the church about 15 years ago, I was a druggie, burning up my brain cells, getting high every single day, chasing the world. I wasn't brought up in any church. When I came into this movement, I learned some things I never learned before, and it, it made a difference in my life and, and my zeal for the truth. At, at times, my zeal for it pushed people away. But as I, as I spent more and more time at the foot of the cross, my loving Lord showed me a better way, a better approach. And now for my own personal ministry, my greatest desire is to point people to the cross in every single prophecy, every single standard, and every single presentation I give to others is to point people to Calvary. To help people understand that prophecy is not a revelation of doom and gloom, but it's a revelation of hope. You see, friends, let me say it like this. Doctrines without the love of Jesus are irrelevant. Prophecy without the love of Jesus is scary. Standards without the love of Jesus are oppressive, but doctrines with the love of Jesus is important. Prophecy with the love of Jesus is exciting, and standards with the love of Jesus is a delight. It's not just a duty, but it's a delight. Can you say amen? amen. These two things must be placed together. It is one and the same. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Oh, I love this quotation in the book, lift him up. I want to do that. How about you? I want to lift him up. And notice what it says on page 98. The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us. Why? For it savors of selfishness. If we're giving our hearts to Jesus because we are afraid to be lost, that's selfish. We are trying to preserve ourselves. That should not be the great motive. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us, that we may be compelled to right action through fear, it ought not to be so. Why? Jesus is attractive. Amen. He's attractive, friends. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. And so there's a ditch, friends. On this side of the narrow road, it's called the ditch of legalism, the offerings of Cain. Christless messages, Christless Christians. But friends, don't forget, there's not just one ditch, there's two ditches. There's another ditch on the other side, on the left side of the narrow road. It's equally as dangerous, and it, this is the ditch of liberalism. The ditch of legalism, dangerous. But then there's a ditch of liberalism. And friends, liberalism is what is sweeping many people off the cliff of ecumenism. Sweet, soft, flowery, fluffiness. The best thing I can use to describe it is cotton candy. This is what I like to call cotton candy Christianity. 
And what is the characteristic of cotton candy? It's nice, it's colorful, it's sweet, it's soft, it's fluffy, it's flowery, but there is no substance in it. It gives people a sugar high, a spiritual a rush, an ecstatic feeling and emotion, but there's no spiritual nourishment that helps them to walk the narrow road. It leaves people spiritually empty. Cotton candy Christianity, soft and sweet and nice and lovely and colorful, but it's fluffy, friends. It's flowery. It's no substance. And friends, listen, there's a subtle deception, a subtle deception that Satan has introduced into Adventism today. And here it is, friends. When people are saying, I don't want to hear doctrine. Let's just talk about Jesus. Let's get together and have a conversation of Jesus. It's all about the love of Jesus. And friends, there's a subtle and a dangerous implication in those statements that Satan has caused many people to, to believe. And the implication is that prophecy and doctrine and standards are not about Jesus, that somehow Jesus is one thing and the doctrines and prophecies are something that is totally separate. But here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Is it biblically possible to separate Jesus from prophecy? No. Now, friends, listen, it is possible, but it's not biblically possible. It's possible. We just talked about that. Legalism separates Jesus from prophecy. They give the message with a sense of doom and gloom with no hope in it, no refuge in it. So it is possible, and that's a tragedy, but it's not biblically possible to separate Jesus from prophecy. Why? Because Jesus is the word that was made flesh. He is the logos, friends. You can't separate Jesus from his own words because Jesus is the word. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christ said, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. You see, the heart is made known by the words. Therefore, we cannot know the heart of God without first hearing the words of God. For out of the abundance of the heart, God speaks to us. And so to disregard the words of God, any portion of it, is to have a, a blurry, unbalanced picture as to what God's heart really is like concerning the children of men. Are you with me? Amen. You see, it is true. We can preach doctrines without Christ, but it is not true. We cannot truly preach Christ without preaching doctrines, prophecies, and standards as well. Why? Because listen, friends, every single prophecy, every single doctrine, every single standard and principle in the Bible is like a camera lens that magnifies who God is. And if there's any photographers here, you know what I mean by that. You see, the purpose of a lens is to magnify and clarify an object. Isn't that right? Every principle, prophecy, doctrine, and teaching in the Bible is a lens. The Sabbath is a lens. The state of the dead is a lens. Every single message we hold dearly, the health message and education reform, these are all lenses that help us to see clearly that magnifies who God is. Now listen, obviously, the object, which is Christ, is more important than the lens. But when you remove the lens of prophecy, doctrine, standards, and teachings, when you get rid of those lenses, you have a blurry picture of Christ. 
You can't really know him or see him for who he really is. And the blurrier your picture of Christ is in your mind, the more easily Satan can introduce an antichrist. And so you're looking and it looks like Christ. It seems like Christ. It sounds like Christ. But in reality, it is an antichrist. It is a false Christ. And let me share with you, friends. This is the reason why the daughters of Babylon are so readily turning back to the mother church because they've removed the lens of doctrine and Satan has introduced an antichrist. You see, it's the lens that helps us to, to see the true Jesus and by contrast to recognize the anti-Jesus. Oh, friends, please allow me. Our time is, is running, but please allow me this morning to hammer this point into our hearts and minds today. I have a heavy burden for this, a heavy burden for this, for us to understand that prophecy in Jesus are one and the same. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is the purpose of prophecy? Let me read these uh, verses and share these points. It says in 2 Peter 1 verse 19, please write it down. It says, we have also a more, what? Sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the what? Day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Notice, friends, what is the purpose? The primary purpose of prophecy, the sure word of prophecy, it's so that the day star can get in our hearts. Who's the day star? It's Jesus. Prophecy, the purpose of it is so that Jesus can get inside and so that we can be ready for the day dawn. That's the return of Christ. That's the purpose of prophecy. Revelation 1 verse 1 tells us it's the revelation of beasts and dragons and plagues. Is that what it says? No, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not a revelation from Jesus to man only, but a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is wanting to reveal himself. Revelation is not a scary book because it reveals Jesus and Jesus isn't scary. He's beautiful and wonderful and lovely. And as people see revelation through the, through the lens of, of seeing Christ Oh, there is power, friends. There is power in that message. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's the words of Christ. So those who say, oh, I don't want prophecy, what they're really saying is, I don't want Jesus. That's what they're really saying, and many of them don't even realize that. The three angels' messages are called the everlasting gospel, and that word gospel means good news. News by its very nature must be communicated. It's not bad news or scary news. Good news, and friends, if the news is good, it ought to be communicated with power and enthusiasm and great joy. That's the message, friends. It's the same gospel, the everlasting gospel. Don't ever let anyone cause you to believe that the three angels' messages are not good news. It's called the everlasting gospel. And when you read the Bible, God loves everyone. But it's interesting that you find in the Bible two individuals whom the Bible emphasizes were really loved by God. Do you know who those individuals are? Two of them specifically. John the Beloved. When John writes his gospel, he says, he, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But in the Greek, it's even more powerful. It's the disciple whom Jesus kept on loving. In other words, despite my failures and my inadequacies and my inconsistencies, man, Jesus just keeps loving me. He doesn't give up. He just keeps loving me. John recognized that he was loved by God. And who's the other one? Daniel. Daniel, thou art greatly beloved. And it's interesting that these two individuals that experienced the love of God in a profound way were the ones that revealed the prophecies of the last days. Can you say amen? 
We can't separate the love of God from prophecy, friends. It goes together. What is the love chapter in the Bible? The love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. What is the prophecy chapter in the Bible? The very next chapter. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about prophecy. They're side by side. Why? Because you can't have one without the other. The love of God and the prophecies of God go together, friends. It says in the book Evangelism, page 195, let Daniel speak. Let the revelation speak and tell what truth is, what is truth. But whatever phase of the subject is presented, uplift Jesus as the center of all hope. It's as if Daniel and Revelation are being silenced in our church. The prophet appeals, let them speak. They have a message of hope that points to Christ. Amen. Amen. And then on page 196 of the book Evangelism, it says, Ministers should present the sure word of prophecy as the what? Foundation of the faith of Seventh-day Adventists. The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation should be carefully studied. And in connection with them, the words, let's read it together. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. They go together, friends. And unfortunately, one of the main reasons why evangelism is growing dim in our churches and conferences and why faith is growing weak and why love is growing cold is because we are trying to replace, supplement, water down Christ-centered prophecy. Trying to copy the evangelicals who are growing in number but from their own admission are not growing in spirituality, growing in quantity but not quality. Friends, listen carefully. As we travel down this upper road, this narrow road experience, there are two ditches on either side and Satan does not care which one you fall into. The ditch of liberalism on the left and legalism on the right. But here's the thing. As we travel the narrow road, there is also the danger of overcorrection. You see, when you study the history of our beloved church and the generations that have passed, we see a pendulum swinging back and forth from each generation. Back and forth from legalism and liberalism. You see, as human beings, we have a natural tendency to overcorrect. What do I mean by this? Listen, children who grow up in a legalistic household, many times when they become adults, they raise their children in a liberal household. And then those children who are raised up in a liberal household many times overcorrect and raise their children in a legalistic household. And the pendulum swings back and forth and back and forth. You see, friends, just like driving down the highway, overcorrecting can lead to a serious accident. And this is exactly what has happened in many of our churches and institutions. Many have caused spiritual wrecks on the narrow road due to an overcorrection, an overreaction, an overemphasis. As I mentioned, one-sided projects, one-sided preaching is dangerous. It throws us off balance. And those who are trying to pit Jesus against doctrine are really creating a straw man that is distracting us from fulfilling the mission that God has given to us to accomplish. And so when we hear people de-emphasizing and emphasizing, we should not sit by in indifference. We have to meet it head on. And let's put a stop to the pendulum swing in our lives and in our churches. Can you say amen? Let us never forget there are two ditches. And instead of choosing one or the other, let's choose the third option, which is not legalism, not liberalism, but the way of love. Amen. The way of love. And what does love look like? Here's what it looks like. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But he also said, go and sin no more. 
One side says, neither do I condemn you. It's all good. Sin until the Lord comes. It's going to be all right. The other side says, go and sin no more. But friends, the middle says them both together. Amen. Neither do I condemn you. The love way says Jesus will accept us just as we are, no matter what condition we come. But that same love will not leave us as we are. That love will take us down and up that path that leads to the upper room. That's the way of love, friends. Love says, I'm going to come down to you and I'm going to die on the cross. But I'm not just going to die. I'm going to ever live to make intercession for you in the heavenly sanctuary. That's the balanced way, the Christ way, the way of love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And friends, I believe that this generation is the generation who will finally connect the theological dots to see the connection between the altar of sacrifice in the outer court where Jesus died at the cross with a connection with the most holy place experience in, at the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments are. And it's interesting that it's at those two places, the altar and the most holy place, where mercy and truth kiss and embrace each other. That's the balanced way. We should not stop at the cross in the outer court, nor do we need to skip the cross and go straight to the most holy place where the law is. But we need to walk that path in its entirety. Can you say amen? amen? And how can we walk that path without falling into the ditches? Balance. And balance does not mean lukewarm. Balance means we're listening to Christ. And how do we attain it? We're almost finished. Isaiah 30 verse 21 says, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Whether you turn to the right hand or you turn to the left. We must hear that word speaking through the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy that helps us to be on track. We're tempted to turn to the right and to the left. But God says, no, this is the way, the narrow way, the road that leads to the upper room. And this was the voice that was speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's what Jesus was trying to communicate. The upper road leading to the upper room. True unity must be founded upon sound theology. That's the reason why Jesus broke down Bible prophecy on the upper road to Emmaus, which prepared the disciples for the upper room in Jerusalem. Because they needed to see him clearly first before they could pray and preach correctly on the day of Pentecost. And what happened in the upper room is illustrated in the sanctuary. And I close with this point. It's interesting, friends, when you look at the sanctuary. In the sanctuary, you see a road that leads to a room. There's a road that starts on the outside. And as you walk up this road, this path, it leads to a room, a room where revival is realized. The Bible says, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. The sanctuary is a road that leads to room. And so here's what happened, friends. The upper road of Emmaus is what basically helped that early apostolic church from, to go from their disappointment at the cross to their divine appointment in the holy place. That's what the road of Emmaus was doing. It was helping the disciples see the significance of the cross and it was leading them to their upper room, the holy place experience, where they were able to partake of the bread, understanding the word, 
therefore praying in the upper room and thus being filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit that caused that baptism of fire on the day of Pentecost that caused the light of truth to shine brightly to the whole world. That was their upper room experience. Amen? Amen. From the cross to the holy place. But the remnant is just like the original. So the remnant will, will continue up that same road and the remnant will be taken from the holy place experience into the final upper room, the most holy place experience. You see, in 1844, we're disappointed at the veil. We didn't understand what truly took place there. But the Holy Spirit is wanting to lead us to understand it so that we can enter into that final upper room, into the secret place of the Most High, that we might abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's the prophetic significance of what we're dealing with this morning. How many of you see your need for that upper room experience? And therefore, what do we need to be proclaiming to the world? What exactly is the testimony of Jesus that the remnant is moved to proclaim? It is what is referred to by many as present truth. Now that expression means a lot of different things depending on who you ask. But let's find out quickly what is present truth exactly. Well, the word present has to do with time. Isn't that right? But what time? Right now, the present time. And who is truth? Jesus, of course. And it's interesting, Jesus said, I am the way, truth, and life. Now, when Jesus said, I am, what tense is I am? Present. present. Not I was or I will be. I am, that's present tense. So when Jesus said, I am the truth, he basically saying is, I'm present truth. And other words, present truth is embodied in myself. But more specifically, present truth is truth wherever Jesus is presently. Did you catch that? Present truth is truth wherever Jesus is presently. So friends, where is Jesus right now? He's not in the outer court at the altar, nor in the holy place. Presently in the most holy place. So what is present truth? It's when we help people to walk through the entire sanctuary from the outer court to the holy place, to the most holy place, pointing to where Jesus is and what he's doing. Friends, you know where Jesus is? He's in the upper room. And he's calling us to come. He's calling us to go with him into that upper room that we might be empowered to finish the work in these last days. The sanctuary is a road that leads to a room. We must go there. Three ways. Three ways. Number one, we must go there theologically. Never downplay or de-emphasize our message. Let us study to understand the things that angels find intriguing. We must study the concepts of the courtyard and the lessons of the holy place, but let us never forget to go into that final upper room where present truth is revealed. We must go there, number one, theologically. Can you say amen? Number two, we must go to that upper room experientially in entering into that intimate place with Jesus. The place where sin is blotted out from the record above and the experience of our lives beneath is the place that we receive his everlasting righteousness. We must go to that upper room experientially, theologically. And number three, we must go there evangelistically to give the world the whole message of where Jesus is and what he's doing 
the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And by this, we will come to know the real Jesus, the truth as it is in Jesus, the present truth as it is in Jesus. Oh, my friends, how many of you see your need of more of Jesus in your life? The real Jesus, though, amen? The biblical Jesus. And that's what it means when people say Jesus, period. All, period. What does that mean, friends? Jesus all, it means Jesus as revealed through all that the prophets have spoken. Let's not settle for anything less than all that the prophets have spoken. That's the true Jesus all. Not the Jesus of our own devising, but the Jesus as revealed through his word. And so our prayer today as we close, Lord, give me all of you as revealed through all the prophets have spoken. Is that your prayer? You want all of Jesus? That's the first prayer. The second prayer is this. Lord, I give you all of me. I take all of you and I give you all of me. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here with you today, friends, to share the burden of my heart. Let's stop the pendulum. Amen. Amen. Let's walk that narrow road. Let's avoid the ditches. And let's be that generation that connects all the dots, that movement that moves forward in true progressive thinking, in remaining original, and giving the message that will bring in the return of our King. Amen. Amen. If that is the experience you desire, I invite you to stand with me as we close with prayer. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we stand before you, not because we are strong, but because we are weak, and we need your strength, dear God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming down to us, for drawing near to us in our disappointment, in our darkness, for bringing to us the light of life, for enlightening our minds to connect the theological dots to help us to see clearly Christ in the context of prophecy. Prophecy in the context of Christ. Thank you so much, Lord, for the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And Lord, we stand because we want to be that remnant, those who remain original, the true progressives that will move forward this mission, carry this message that will bring in your return. But Father, we recognize and acknowledge that we're not worthy. We're, not, we're inadequate. We're insufficient. And we're weak. So we pray, dear God, that you'd please clothe us with your righteousness in that most holy place. Lead us by your spirit and now fill us with your spirit. We know that Pentecost is going to be repeated and we see the mercy drops around us falling. But Lord, we want you to shower those blessings upon us today. Make us the people, the movement you want us to be. And as we share this message with others, may we be balanced. May we be Christ-centered. Give us tactfulness and give us boldness. Most of all, give us love. This is our prayer and we thank you for answering it. 
In the blessed name of Christ, we pray and everyone said, Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.